0: Hello and welcome to episode six of the Sales Syndicate podcast, take two. Um, you guys won't see this on the podcast, but we've actually done the first fifteen minutes of this already, and we're we're going over again because we had uh, some initial technical difficulties. So uh, fortunately, we, we've got some time with uh, with Mr. Tom Sutton, who's who's joined me here today. Um, Tom, for, for those who maybe don't know who you are, are you able to just to give us a bit of an introduction. You know, give us a little bit of background about who you are and you know why we're talking today. Sure.
1: For the second time. Um, yeah,
0: hopefully not the third. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hi, folks. Ellis, thanks for having me on this. I appreciate it. I'm quite excited to be here. Um, my name is Tom Sutton. I work for a company called NCC Group. We're a cyber um, security and software resilience business based in the UK, but pretty much servicing most of the global market, at least in the developed world. Um, I'm an account director. I spent the first part of my career in the UK. I'm from the north of England, so I lived in Manchester. And I emigrated to the US about five years ago and I now live in Atlanta, Georgia. But in my time, uh, I don't profess to be some sort of sage or you know, expert on international selling, um, but I have sold to a lot of countries. Um, by either being there or selling to them from different geographies, so hopefully I can share some experiences and things that I've learned along the, along my uh, along my career that people will find useful on this podcast.
0: We're, we're excited to have you on, mate. Um... Just for those who have just joined us, so I've actually been on a few episodes of the Sales Syndicate podcast before, but if for whatever reason you've missed episode one through five and decided to to skip ahead to uh, to this episode, which I'm sure is going to be the best one yet. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm I'm Ellis Campbell. I'm the head of enterprise here at Selligence. Um, so again, I've got background selling into different international territories. Something sold into uh, EMEA, into APAC, Middle East, uh, the US. So between the two of us, hopefully, we'll find a few nuggets and of knowledge and information to uh, to share to share with everyone. Um, me, me, and Tom have, have crossed path initially back in our, our NCC group days. Um, Probably worth noting, some as well, you know all of these opinions here today are neither mine from a se standpoint, these are all my personal opinions and uh i 'm sure Tom Tame wants the same same <laughs> caveat none m- this time <laughs> you did you did, but it 's okay i 've got you covered so uh, yeah, none of these opinions these are our personal opinions and not of the companies we we represent so now that we 've got those uh, those caveats out of the way, you know um yeah maybe let's let 's jump into it so international selling um you know, what's, what's, what's your experience? You mentioned they're really top level, but, you know, just thought to yeah. give a bit of an idea, what sort of territories have you sold into? Um,
1: yeah, so I think, firstly, international selling is a very broad, broad topic. You know, you could spend yeah. a long, long time talking about this, researching this, studying this. So, obviously, we're not going to cover everything on a podcast like this. So, my experience, so when, when I was based in the UK, I was obviously focused on the UK market and some of mainland Europe. And a little bit US, but it was more challenging being based in the UK. Um, obviously, now I've moved to America, I've been servicing the North American market. So, US, all over the US. Obviously, the US is so huge. It's, you know, there's so many different cultures just in the US alone and Canada. Yeah. But also, weirdly, since I moved to America, I've, I've done a few deals with customers that are in India, in Singapore, a few different parts of Asia Pac and China. So I've got a bit of experience selling internationally into those sort of com- countries as well, which we can talk on in a minute. But yeah, very broad topic, and I, like I say, I'm not I'm not some sort of oracle on this, but I have some experience. Um, but yeah, I yeah, that's a bit of a snippet.
0: Yeah, I think if someone's come on here to find an oracle that can tell them everything about international selling, they may have come to the wrong podcast. But if they want to, if they want to come to two guys who have sold into a lot of different countries and can share some useful information, yeah, then I think they're in the they're in the right place. And you're right, you've hit the nail on the head. Unless someone wants to sit here and listen to me and you talk for four or five hours, which I'm sure no one wants we to do that yeah oh, we could yeah i mean if there was a few pints there as well then definitely it could go on and on and on but um no i think we'll we'll go very broad level top level today when we talk about international selling and um yeah if, if we uh if we find that there's another episode to come maybe looking to focusing on a particular vertical area or geography then you know we can always explore that further down the line um i think maybe the first thing for us just to to maybe touch upon and look at which quite again, quite broad, but how have you found sell like different cultures when you're going into international selling? So US obviously being a big one for you being based out there, but, you know, even just further afield from maybe some of your earlier days, how how have you seen that? You know, is there a massive difference? What's your experience?
1: Um, I think that when you're looking at different markets, there's two ways to look at it. So the first is looking at like the formal things about the country. Like its history, its legal system, like, was it part of the Commonwealth? Is it, is it part, you know, how it kind of functions as a, as a formal country? Yeah. So like, you know, things that you've got to think about, like barriers to entry from a legal perspective, um, and China and India are good examples of that. Israel is another one. And then when you think about culture, yeah, there's massive differences between different countries. And obviously, you'll never fully understand the culture, of a different country that you're trying to trying to work with but you should at least try or have a high level understanding and yeah. that'll really help you there's something that is quite interesting that i'd actually recommend people have a look at after after the podcast if they want to there's something called Hofstede's cultural dimensions which is a way that you can see how this this researcher from like decades ago has basically come up with measurements of how to how to kind of at a top level assess different cultural dynamics of different countries things like power distance, things like um, uncertainty avoidance. There's lots of different things that you can actually look at that'll give you something to actually like a measurement. So that's something to think about and look at if you're interested after this podcast, it's called Hofstede's cultural dimensions. Um, And so that when you look at that, there's loads of differences. Like countries like Singapore and Asia park, they're very, very detail focused. They're thinking about not leaving anything unturned, thinking about every circumstance, so they're very certain to avoid uncertainty, and there are other cultures that are different to that. You agree the principles, what you're going to do, and then you go ahead and you trust each other to get it done. So there's loads of differences, and, and one thing that I found that when I, and this is a small thing, but when I moved to America, my first business trip to America, I went to San Francisco. Yeah. And I, I was I was working in Manchester, like you know we had quite a corporate culture. You'd wear a suit to the office, as is, was quite common in the UK. Probably still is yeah. a little bit. And so I went to San Francisco thinking, right, I'm just going to wear business casual. I'll wear chinos and brown shoes and a shirt. And everyone was like, why are you dressed up so formally? Like, what what are you doing? (laughs) And I was like, "I thought I was dressed casually. But everyone's just hanging out with jeans and a T-shirt, you know, working for these big tech companies. Just a completely different attitude to kind of attire for work. And it's the same in Atlanta, same in Georgia. Much less formal, much more casual, so to speak. Doesn't doesn't change how hard people work. It's just something that was a bit of a culture shock to me when I uh, when I came to America.
0: that I didn't Have, think would be one, you know. No, and has is that – you've obviously been out there for a little while now. Is Was that the same, like, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic? Because, I mean, at least from, you know, British side of things, it's definitely been a, a shift from wearing a suit and tie and a full-blown suit <laughs> into the office to then, you know, today I'm wearing a polo shirt onto to the office. And again, that's probably classed as quite smart compared to, to some people in the office. So has is, is that been the same all the way through or has it got even more casual since you've come into a pandemic, you know, if it can?
1: I've, so we're still in a hybrid model. Um, I think most businesses in North America are. So yeah. I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. I don't think it's changed that much because the US kind of was already pretty casual as it yeah. is. But if you were to look at somewhere like Wall Street, I don't know if it's different. Maybe it is. Um maybe it's just the UK, uh, UK catching up, Alice. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I I would probably tend to agree because yeah, I don't think I could go back to sitting at a desk even at a day where you're just, you know, making a few phone calls and you're doing admin and you've got to sit there with a full-blown shirt and tie on. It's just um it's not the one. And I don't know about you, but we've got table tennis in our office and it's really hard to play table tennis in a pair of tight work trousers. So I'm um, <laughs> I'm very very thankful for the uh for the the relaxation of uh, of the clothing etiquette. Can you take with
1: suit pants. You could Yeah, you couldn't.
0: and no, and I'm not a small guy, so that's pretty stiffly not a strong. It's not a strong point of mine, um, as you would have well known, having worked to me in the past. So I'm quite, I'm quite thankful for um, for the the relaxation of it. Um, I mean, obviously, when you're looking at other cultures, you, you touched on a good few points there. I thought so. We've got, obviously, you've got the US in terms of you know um, culture of you know how you interact, and maybe you mentioned there the way that people do business slightly like, differently and power dynamics between it. Um, how does that work with you being, you know, a Brit? Is there do you tend to find that most of the time when you're dealing with these sorts of people, there's sort of an understanding that you're not an American and therefore they give you a little bit more leniency? Or do you find actually it's the opposite way around and you know they want to test it to see if you're <laughs> if you've acclimatised yourself to the to the US way of things?
1: I'm pretty acclimatized, Ellis, because my wife is American. Both yeah. kids are American, so I'm pretty acclimatized now. I'd say being a Brit is can be used as an icebreaker. Because obviously you just it's something different yeah. but it really depends on the company you're dealing with and it depends on i guess not just us different countries too so when you sell into i've not experienced it much but when when you sell into india there are some folks that just want to work with indian organizations i get it yeah it's definitely the same in china because there are barriers to entry for organizations that don't trade in those countries to do business with chinese or indian organizations and You don't think it, but it really is quite challenging first time around. But in in the U.S. and the businesses I work with, they're quite global organizations. They've got reasonably good global standards and global practices and global policies. So, you know, you're dealing with people that are coming from all over the world anyway. So that really helps. But being a Brit, maybe it's an icebreaker. Um, I don't know. You'll have to ask people that deal with me. But, yeah.
0: Well, fortunately, I've asked people that have dealt with you, and we're bringing them on today. So, uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, We've, um, yeah, we've. uh, I think the good thing, I think, especially when we look at the US, um, I think it's quite good. Again, I'm a Brit that sells largely to the US. I'm not based out there, but I'll I'll spend my evenings doing demos and and even like new business development. I think the culture of even like cold calling or doing like business development outreach from the US uh, for me it just tends to be a little bit more direct um, compared to what happens in the UK. So you'll deal with someone and, you know, you, you warm them up and you'll talk about them and try to build the relationship. Whereas I think a lot of the time the Americans I deal with, um it's just a little bit more blunt and to the point and as a salesperson i love that because i learn very quickly whether i'm wasting my time or whether i'm interested there um but i do think the britishness does help to a degree it might just buy you that five to ten seconds more of intrigue from that initial outreach or that initial call to to hear your pitch and um there is a, a mutual colleague we've both worked with in the past who I know massively leverages his British accent while working in the U.S. Um, I'm assuming you know who that person is. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that he's watching this as well, because I'm sure he'll love getting the shout out. But I definitely know it can help um, just by having a different sort of voice or a different tone of voice yeah. of someone coming from a different, yeah. a different angle.
1: I think it can. And, um, you know, you, you've got to kind of use every tool that's at your disposal. But I think on the directness, that's definitely true. But it also depends on where you are in the U.S., like what part of America you're dealing with. Because if someone from New York will probably be a more, lot more direct with you than someone that is from a different part of the country. And I have actually been given that feedback that just get to the point, you know what I mean? Because we like to, uh, you know.
0: Small talk. I
1: don't know how to, how to say it, but, you know, you butter things up when you just, just get to the point, be a bit more direct. I do think that is true. But it is in different parts of the country, it's different for sure.
0: Yeah, and we we won't cover all of that on an episode because I think if he was going to try and break it down state by state, we really would be here a long time. And um and that's probably the one area for me that's probably an area of improvement that we think we always need to work on is being based in the UK. It's so hard to gauge the differences yeah. between those yeah. states. I feel like like most things, most countries and cultures, that you only can really learn that when you've lived out there and you've experienced it. Um And I mean, you with uh, an American wife and living in the US and still even to this day, learning the different nuances shows us that you're never really going to fully get it unless you're you're there and i guess that's why when you look at we touched upon countries like india and china and and even israel to a degree where you know there's literally policies in place about trying to keep stuff in country in-house in terms of the other businesses they work with you know it's not a surprise when you look at any sales organizations that when they typically tend to target even europe you know germany or france most businesses will try to get a native speaker someone who's been out there work the market because it is so hard to go to these countries to to, to try and open up not just even existing account management business where you've got that relationship but even like new business i feel like unless you've got Mm -hmm. someone there to champion you in the first place it becomes quite a hard sell
1: yeah i mean the the cultural differences between uk and us still finding them today and I've been married to my wife for eight years and I've lived in the U.S. for five years. That is definitely true. And one thing that I used to find was when I'd get a really direct response, like years ago from someone, I'd think it was rude, but it wasn't. Yeah. It's was just just being direct with you. So it's not rude. It's just they're just being clear and direct, and some people totally prefer that. I would say that the markets you mentioned, so I've got experience dealing with India and, and China, but they were from referrals from global businesses that I work with that just had subsidiaries or had acquired businesses in those countries. And there were for sure barriers to entry to to dealing with with those countries, and I took them. I didn't take them seriously. I thought we'll, we'll get through this, but yeah. it is difficult. Like with with Indian organisations, you've got to provide them with loads of documentation, tax exemptions. There's tax. There's tax um, implications on on invoicing Indian companies. that's that's actually quite challenging. So going through that process at the f- first is difficult. And in China, I think it used to be you had to have. Um, your company or your subsid part owned by either a Chinese organization or there had to be some sort of shared ownership Connection with China there. There for to yeah. work. Otherwise you couldn't do business there. And if you're trying to do business with China as an outside business, it has to be a pure play offshoring arrangement. Otherwise you can't do the business. And so it's tough. They're tough markets and I don't hunt there. I'm not going to say I do. I don't. And that's not my Yeah. Job. I'm focused on predominantly North American markets, but it's, um, yeah, it's interesting and it's a very broad topic, like you say.
0: I guess um we sort of certainly covered this on our, our take one of our podcasts, but I think you mentioned to me before that once you've gone through that process once, it becomes a lot easier though, because once you've gone through there, you learn, right, what certifications do I need? What do I need in order to win business here? And it, this goes for international selling, but this goes for going into new verticals, new areas, whether you're moving into enterprise selling or whatever it may be. It's always a case of once you've learned What do I need in place to be able to do business with these organizations? Once you've got that first successful use case, it becomes so much easier to replicate that success because you know now what they're looking for, which then makes you seem more confident, that gives them more Mm -hmm. confidence in your business. And then you can obviously look to to replicate um, that success.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's twofold because you know what you're walking into and whether to do the business in the first place. Like if you think this is, you, when you know the hurdles, you've got to jump through the paperwork you've got to provide, yep. the approvals you've got to give. You look at the dollar value of the deal and you decide, am I going to do this or not? That's going to that's gonna help in your own decision making. But then if it is a deal you want to pursue, being able to explain to a customer that you know the process or you've been through it before, you've got experience with it, it gives them confidence to buy from you. Otherwise, they might have some serious trepidation. And when I've done business with organizations from those companies, that's one of the things you get asked, straight away have you done business with companies from this country before and if you have and you can explain that and they get confidence that you understand the process then you've got more like more likelihood of making a sale so i think it's twofold in the value that that gives once you've gone through it once which is challenging and you've got to make that call as a business or as a salesperson do you want to do that is this a good market for us or not and that's i guess part of the early decision making process as to whether you want to try that or not
0: yeah and i think well you've hit a good a good point there again i think which is you you weigh it up, don't you? Like if, if you sell into one of these countries and it's a small deal and you go, well, actually, it's probably costing us more to do this business. But then at least as a business, when you understand that, you can decide, well, is this opportunity large enough that it's worth us going through that process again because the output and the results are going to be there? Or actually, as you said, do we go, Actually, this isn't worth our time. This is going to be yeah. cause more issues. The time yeah. we spent on this opportunity, we could have been focusing on another opportunity and, and making more of that money back. So, I think mean, that's probably a, a really big point: is weighing up where you're likely to have success, where the you know the path of least resistance sometimes, and then understanding how you can how you can maximise that.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Do you do your research? Uh, be honest with yourself. Um, don't think you know everything, and then you'll ultimately make a better decision to whether to pursue it or not
0: nice moving in that same direction um just making sure we, we're staying on track we know we've got a lot to cram into this uh episode Tom. um maybe looking at you know we we've talked a lot about different territories how how did you find maybe this is a good good point to look back from when you're in the uk how did you find the terms of the us working hours different you know you mentioned you work in apac you work in the uk in the yeah. us you know, did you did you have a process to that? How did you find that? Or did you find people were quite flexible because they knew you were in a different geography? Um,
1: it's, uh, before the pandemic, and we started really, because I used to work in the office when I first moved to America. I did, you did a sort of eight till five. And I went and did a full day in the office yesterday. I was feeling exhausted. I couldn't, I was like, no, I can't do it.
0: I, <laughs> I, I, I can't do it either anymore. It feels so weird if you spend five days in a row in the office now. Yeah,
1: it just exhausts you. Um, so, but before it was pretty similar. Now, obviously you've got, Different time zones in the US because you've got the West Coast, which is three hours difference to the East Coast, which is quite a lot. So you end up probably having to work a little bit varied hours when you work in the office. But since we've moved to remote work and it's just totally changed how I work, so I deal with some global banks and they've got presences in Asia Pack. So you'll end up doing work with folks in Asia Pac, like Singapore and India, and um, that means you have to work random hours. Like I'll do random calls, at, you know, early in the morning. That many years ago, I wouldn't have even. Thought about it, you know, five in the morning. But now it's like you just do it, and then you, you know, you take an hour off in the middle of the day. You just have a break. (laughs) You have a long lunch or something like that. Your hours are just totally different. I think in the job that I do, I hope my boss isn't listening to this, but the days of having a nine to five just they're gone.
0: No, (laughs) I I I agree. The thing is, though, it's they're getting more out of you. I don't know anyone that works Mm -hmm. multiple geographies. I don't know a single person who. When you look at their hours, they work, they're working less. And there's not a single person, you know, if someone, especially a salespeople, if we're if we've worked a normal day, we've gone through it. And as you mentioned, someone in in APAC says to you, yeah, Tom, I'm really interested. I've got this big opportunity. I want to try and do it this month. You can guarantee you're going to be doing that. And even if they went to, you, right, I've got three of these back to back, half five to seven, and I still need to do a full day. That's the needs of the business. When 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 there's money on the line, there's targets to hit. We'll all be willing to be to be to be flexible because we're all greedy salespeople and we all want money. So, it's uh, it's in our nature.
1: I re- it really is. I I I do it, and then you know just take Friday afternoon off. Right, Ellis?
0: I don't know what you're talking about, Tom. No, I don't think I've ever been in a pub at four o'clock on a Friday. Never. So. No, it's it's a good point. And I, I think that's the biggest thing, is when people start looking at, you know, different... I feel like if you're going to look at international selling, maybe this is more towards someone a slightly smaller organizations where they started off whether it be the us or the uk initially and maybe they're looking at venturing further afield I feel like if you're gonna do it you just need to really fully commit you can't can't have you know try you can't try to micromanage both you can't do the uk market and think well on the side hustle i'll start the us because you just won't get into it i feel like you need someone to be fully focusing their time and attention on it and then you'll start seeing the real returns on that investment
1: I, I totally agree. And ultimately, it's one of my mates told me this quite recently, actually, he said, he who pays says, so if the customer wants to do a call at 5 in the morning and you want to make the sale, then do it. Yep, That's a pretty clear rule to, to follow. But I'd say the cultural difference is, yeah, you've got to do it properly, like commit to it, because like I've said before, you're not going to fully understand the culture, but you should try to and do your best to. And I, I remember when I moved to the U.S. being a Brit, I kind of assumed that I understood a lot about the culture, and it was very similar yeah. It's not at all. It's very, very different, and there's a lot to it that st- I'm, I'm still learning today um, that I didn't appreciate whatsoever before I moved here. And I think that's a really important thing to, to note that if you do want to really be successful in a different country, in a different culture, you've got to you've got to really immerse yourself in it and give it your best efforts. Otherwise, you'll likely not get the success you should.
0: No, completely, completely valid advice for us to to take away. The, the next point I was hoping to discuss with you, we've sort of touched upon it a bit already, but, you know, I call it almost like the, the legal section, which sounds like a really boring part of the podcast. But I think it's oh. it's one that can be quite underestimated when you're looking at working with international businesses. So you mentioned already some of the issues around, you know, we mentioned China, we mentioned Israel, we mentioned India, India. Um, Maybe how, how how do you do you manage that? I mean, um, imagine from a legal standpoint, a contractual standpoint. You know, oh. what you, what law takes precedent when you're working with the US or the UK? You know how yeah. how have how have you found the best way to to manage that? Is you know is that again customer led? Is that something you tend to
1: provide yeah. guidance
0: on? It, it, well, I'm quite fortunate in that
1: I work for a reasonably global business, and we have attorneys in the US and in the in the UK and Europe, so we can kind of cover a lot of bases but I would tend to take a customer led approach within reason and yeah. I'm not an expert on this. I'm not an attorney, um, but it's, or a lawyer, sorry. Um, my apologies, Ellis. That's okay. Sorry. <laughs> right.
0: I'm just I'm secretly holding it against you, but it's okay.
1: Yeah. But it's, I just, I just follow the customer. Look, if it's a US customer, you're likely going to be asked to U S law, probably Delaware yeah. because all companies tend to register themselves or do deals in Delaware law as reasons for it. Um, which I don't fully understand, but it's like privacy reasons or tax reasons. So I tend to just take a customer-led approach. But if you don't have expertise in the jurisdiction and you're not comfortable as a business writing a contract in that law, then obviously don't do it. You've got to weigh the risks up, Um, which is another thing to think about before you decide to sell to a different territory. Um, But I'm not an expert, Ellis.
0: On this no, one. I I mean, I don't think, well, neither of us are legally trained. So de- definitely is another caveat. Do not, not take yet. legal advice from me and Tom. That's um, certainly not what we re- were recommending. But I, I, I think the, the issues I've seen, you know, obviously given the nature of what we've I've done in the past and some of the work you've probably done as well, when you've got, it's fine when you're working one business to one business, right? When I am working from the UK contracting with someone in the US, you know, our legal team sit down, their legal team sit down. We figure out, you know, If ultimately the reality is if they're the paying client and they want US law. Most of the time, the supplier will accommodate that and will work with them because they want their money, want their business. I mean, when you can get into quite messy grounds is when you've got multiple. When you're bringing partners, when you're bringing other third parties, when you're bringing other companies into that mix, maybe you're providing a service offering, but it works hand-in-hand with another solution from another business. I think sometimes that can be underestimated as how much of a stumbling block and an issue that can be. Because if you end up working with providing your service offering from the U.K., to a US client with another third party who provide their software out of Israel, there's so much red tape and legality around that. Come back comes back to that point we mentioned earlier that you really have to weigh up: Are we all putting our time and effort into the right place? Is it actually worth us going through that, or is this going to be too difficult because? I feel it's fine as long as one business can be flexible, but I feel Mm -hmm. like sometimes people can go out to look at targeting new markets and not really understand what they're letting themselves in for. And if you've invested eight months into a full-blown enterprise sales cycle only to find out it's not going to be feasible, so I guess that the point I'm trying to make here in maybe a more long winded way is I think it's good to try and vet out those issues, those legal issues as early as possible. You know, don't be so afraid of losing the deal or losing the opportunity that you, you know, almost put off getting to that stage. It's better almost right at that early stage that discovery call, that sort of first initial demo, whatever it may be for your product service or offering to just try and vet that out very early as possible um so that you're not wasting your time into a sales cycle that you're just never going to be able to close i
1: totally agree on an individual deal basis absolutely if you think there's going to be hurdles that are going to be real roadblocks a deal deal with them up front and if you can't deal with them then the deal's not going to happen is it that's just a yeah. logical thing to do and if you're thinking about getting into a new market just do your research up front figure out is this worth it for us is this a yeah. market we actually can win in like who are the players what is the what are the cultural roadblocks? What are the formal roadblocks? If we can overcome them, great. If we can't, don't do it. You know, that's just part of the decision making process. I think that's something that salespeople and I've definitely fallen into the trap. You chase deals for so long, you put so much energy into, into doing something that may happen, may not, but when you think about it, blum and I've put forty hours into that deal, it's hardly paid. For yeah. anything. Was it really worth it? And you have to be on you have to be honest with yourself.
0: Tough so, that's it. No, it's it's right. And and it's like especially I think the problem is we're all salespeople, right? You know, if I'm targeting and this is maybe less of the legal side, but if I'm targeting an opportunity with a client who works in another geography, you know, I want my product to be such a fit for what they do that you know i try to shoehorn it or i try to make it fit because i can see the opportunity there i got a deal to close out to hit my forecast or my number and i think we, we've mentioned this on other podcast episodes but i think as salespeople, we have to ask the questions we don't always want to hear the answers to and it's better to find that out if you're going to mm-hmm. lose it's a cliche but if you're going to lose lose early and lose quickly yeah. so you can move yeah. on and, and find those opportunities totally. where where you can totally. win um mm-hmm. On on that same vein, so we mentioned obviously talking about legal contracts there. How do you manage sort of maybe probably more of like an MSA sort of style process? So where where you're dealing with a client who they operate in APAC, they operate in the US, they operate um, in the Middle East. You know how 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 uh, how do you manage that from like a global standpoint? Do you typically find you know, is it the UK headquartered office that takes that control? Is it tend to yeah. be or maybe if there's other countries that are more difficult, do they typically turn and take control of that because they've got more red tape? What what's your experiences with that?
1: Um obviously you, you know the products and services that I work with, so it's very specific my experiences to that. Yeah. Um and I would say follow the follow the business that you're working with, take take their steer. And what I mean by that is You've got a lot of businesses that are truly like global or multinational businesses that aren't particularly joined up deliberately. Like they may operate in different business, in different markets, in different geographies and do different things. And so have a deliberate decision. We are going to let our business units do what they need to do to be competitive in whatever it is they do. And so having global processes and global policies, I mean, they might, you know, buy a Microsoft license globally or HR system globally. But other than that, it's going to be relatively decentralized. So a lot of businesses deliberately do that. But there are some that try to have strict global policies, global procurement, global vendor management, and try to do things the same way in as best they can in all the territories and markets that they operate in. And so the way you structure an MSA will be very dependent on how a company works. Is a company global? Is a company global in in name, but not really in the way it operates? So we're doing an MSA with a company that's truly global. Yeah, you do as much as you can. Set standards, set process, repeatable. You go. You go through all the approvals. You just make transacting as frictionless as you can moving forward. That's the, that's the goal. Make it easy for everybody to do business together. So everything you can put into an MSA that achieves that, go for it. If you can add value into it, go for it. If it's a different, if it's a different different structure and it's different little businesses making their own calls, then you just got to have to work on an individual basis and just figure out what's right for that line of business and how they want to work with you. And, again, make the decision, is it is it worth going down the path or are there other are opportunities to try to create synergies? But I would always say when I'm working on MSAs, I would just try to make them as – essentially you're making the downstream transacting as seamless and frictionless as you possibly can to make everybody's life easier and ultimately bring more revenue in for, you, for your organization and for yourself.
0: Yeah, I, I, I sort of answered asked you that question sort of semi-knowing you the answer, obviously looking to to cover this off on the topic because I do – You know it. You say it yourself. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I'm not the star of the show, Tom. You are today. So um, I, I think a lot of the time as well, I think with an MSA – you know, I think sometimes in theory it sounds like really good practice and for lots of businesses and the way they work it's good you can set a, you know, a global standard you can use that to leverage when you're dealing with other geographies or uh, maybe you haven't had the same normal day-to-day interaction I mean where people just have to be slightly careful and, and maybe caveat that slightly is that you will have businesses where especially lots of companies where they've built up through acquisition whereas yes they fall under like the umbrella of the overarching business and organisations but you can sign what you think is a, a global MSA but actually in reality when you get into the detail you haven't even you know half of these businesses aren't aware that that's there Um, and not it's not always fit for purpose because to work with that that location or that geography you need different things so i think the reason why i asked that question you know to get your insight there is because you're right i think it's scoping that out and realizing that it's choosing picking and choosing the right sort of way to approach it for each client and msa sounds great you can go to your boss we've got an agreement in place you know essentially i'm tackling the whole opportunity the whole account all the geographies but sometimes you can not shoot yourself in the foot but if you can really get really tailored to each one of these you know different locations you, you might be able to get more because you might be working on a more niche project there might be bigger scope for work in that area that doesn't have to be loosely covered off by the MSA where you can have more freedom to be able to go out there and, and maximize that opportunity so I think that's just maybe something people should look at when they're considering both and again I, I caveat that I haven't done massive amounts of MSAs in my time I'd love to say I've done it with every client because that would mean I'm selling a lot but um yeah I think it's just something for people to care of depending on what your, your product service are offering is.
1: Yeah I, I agree. You've got to you got to just ultimately try to find the best way to transact easily and as as from a sales side as as margin rich as possible. Um, but yeah, I echo what you echo what you're saying. One other thing That's to good. add to that though Ellis is yeah I have worked with some companies that need it. They need a signed agreement, they need a signed master or they won't do business with you. And if yeah. that's the case, just just get
0: it done as quick as you can. Yeah, well, yeah you're not going to turn business. down their business, are you? Yeah, you're going to sign it. Ultimately, Agreed. if you need that to work with them, you're going to you're going to do it. But I mean, it segues this quite nicely, really, onto um, to my next point, which is so we're mentioning their different geographies and different offices, um, forgetting the the legal contractual side, and um, I'm sure we've we've covered this again, very top level, but you know. For me, I think one thing I found really useful early on in my career is when I found success in one area, was trying to almost leverage those contacts and where we've had success to get introductions into other parts of the business. Sometimes that might be, you know, I'm working with one sales team that sell one product and I'm trying to get in with another sales team. But a lot of the time it will be geography. So, you know, I might be working with someone in the UK, but I know they've got a massive presence in the US. So how how do you, how do, I guess, how do you go about leveraging those relationships and and you know, where do you find the most success when when leveraging those relationships?
1: With customers or like internally or Probably
0: your yeah, customers with I'd probably customers. say more, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean I've I've been quite fortunate in that as I grown through my sales career I've started to deal with more global customers. And they were yeah. kind of the, the ones that I had the success with and they were able to set global policies and things like that. So it kind of happened by, kind of, it just kind of happened organically. And a lot of the times when you're dealing with big, predominantly banking organizations who I work with, they've got global teams. Like, okay, you're supporting a line of business, but your team is global. You might have someone in, you know, people in North America, people in Europe, people in India. So you're dealing with global teams no matter where you are. Um, So I'd say that that's something that I've been quite fortunate in. But ultimately, for services where you can just repeat them in different countries and there aren't too many barriers if you've made the right the decisions to do, do do business in those countries it's just the same old sales tactics do it do a good job do the right thing provide value do do what you say you're going to do build those customer relationships to the point where they would voluntarily give you a, give you introductions and it can also be something you can throw into any any negotiation you do like if a customer is asking you for something like they want some extra services or they want a discount or something you should always say yes if you do this and it's something i i, I think about if a customer wants a commercial incentive, fine, we can do something. But However, what can you give me only if you do this? Yeah, Introdu- introduce me to three people. Write an internal referral. Write an internal case study, or I'll write it. You just sign it off, and it's a way of building value into something. Like you know, what, what's giving? What's going within your discount threshold? If you can get a, get a referral to three peers that are in decision making positions that you could get business from, nothing. But it's nothing to them either. It's yeah, yeah, uh, virtuous in the value it creates. So I'd say, um, I've just gone off on a bit of a tangent, but... No, 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 it's really good. About.
0: No, I, I guess what there they're is, is networking and negotiating with them to get those um, to get those introductions. And I, I think that's one really good way of opening up um, into new territories. And largely, that's what I did early on in my sales career would be build a good relationship, do a good piece of work, whether they do it out of the kindness of their heart because you've built a solid relationship, or as you said, you do it as part of the negotiation to get it. I mean, it's a good tactic, where I've had other successes as well, which may be probably more geared towards new business development. But you work with one once you sign on a client. If you can have them as like a, a logo or a client that you've worked with, um, you'd be surprised by how many new opportunities I've had, which are from when a business has contacted me and said, "We're one of your quotable clients. How do we work with you?" And it's because we've targeted. It's because we've targeted marketing and ad campaigns at. That geography, you know, we, we're targeting this particular sort of persona in this country. And, you know, and as part of our campaigns, we you know, leverage these are the people we work with. And you're right, there's not always that connect. So just because I work with the guys in the UK doesn't mean the US know that. So you'd be surprised by the amount of opportunities where they've gone. Um, I've just had your... Your, your email through on policy part of your email marketing campaign but i'm one of your our business is already one of your quotable clients like tell us a bit more about that and it's more of an organic way It's still sort of colder outreach you're still doing new business development without having that warm fuzzy introduction but you can you can sometimes leverage that to um yeah. to your advantage um and also Absolutely. again market marketing i think events Um, We can't go into, again, that's probably a whole podcast episode, but I think once you can start leveraging those marketing events, expos, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, I think they can be really good ways to try and demonstrate what's working in one geography, but then also tailoring it as to why it makes sense for for it be the US or Europe or or where else.
1: Agreed. I think um, obviously marketing is crucial to it, isn't it? Getting your message out and pulling customers into you. But the things you can personally control, are essentially doing a good job and where you can ask him for those referrals. But oftentimes, if you do the right thing and you provide value and the relationship is very strong and you've got a long-term focus that you want the relationship with whoever or the team you're dealing with to go on, then those referrals kind of come. Like I often get contacted by people and it's like, they just reach out to me and it's like, where'd you get my name from? But it's from someone I worked with last year and we we did a good piece of work and they just did an internal referral without me even knowing about it. And those sort of things can happen if you're doing all the right things, as you know, as good salespeople know.
0: Well, it's we as we all know, I mean, lots of these markets are quite uh, probably a bad word, but they're quite incestuous in terms of if you work in financial services, the chances are if you're working in one big bank and you're going to move to another company or another job it's likely going to be at another big bank. So that relationship, that personal relationship you built with them is going to follow you there. Equally, they all go to the same sort of events. They all operate in the same circles. So, oh you know, God. we always like to think we're dealing with these people. And we, we, we all, you know, can sometimes be surprised when we get it there. But if someone's turning around and, you know, for you, it's obviously risk mitigation. For me, it's, you know, business development. You know, if they've got a need and they've had a good experience, you know, people talk, it's, it's a much smaller world and circle than we all think so it's um it's you're right and that's why you 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 can only burn a customer once so i think it's that positive experience is always the main thing prioritize that even if that means telling someone this is what i do but it's probably not a good fit for what you're doing now. But you know, great, thanks for your time. That person might move off to another company, another geography, and and then they come back and go, well, actually, it wasn't a good fit for me at that company. But now I'm at company B. I think it'd be great. And your data is really good for that, or it really works really well. And then you have that that relationship. So I think personal relationships and like almost like for you, that's your own brand. They know, deal with Tom. He's good. He knows what he's talking about. This is what they've done. This is why it works. I think that can go a long way when trying to to open up different opportunities in different uh, geographies.
1: Oh. Okay. Obviously, sales people, you've got to hit. Oh, sorry, was. one more thing. To that's say okay. On that. As a salesperson, obviously, you've got to hit your quota, of course you do, and most yep. people have monthly quotas or quarterly quotas. You have to do what you need to do to get your quota. I get it. But you should always have a long-term view with your customer, because you, you never know when that's going to come back around and the value that it'll bring you further down the road. I got contacted a couple of weeks ago by a customer I dealt with Nine years ago. Wow. And not spoke to him for nine years. And they messaged me. I was like, well, What the heck? All right. You must have a must have a either a fuzzy memory or some positive recollection of the way we were together. But that goes to show that, you know, I had I had that long term view and the value was there. And then nine years later they came back to me and said, Can we have a chat
0: about something? And anyway. The oh, it, it, it works the same the other way you know um, oh, yeah, well, we can, we well but, i mean that person was probably surprised you're still at the same company because again that's that's more of a rarity nowadays so um i, I mean and, that, and that's the thing i mean it's you know people it's people you work with you know and maybe that links nice into my my, sort of my my next point anyway but it's people we work with um from internally whether it be elsewhere we all move around you know people work in different companies and businesses so your own personal brand and that relationship can can carry you quite far over um the last sort of point on this really that i was hoping to cover off you then as well is i know mean, it's one that's important probably more so f- for me as well um is what, what i call using your own international resource so um it's all well and good you know i i work in the uk but i work and manage a us team um and that's great and i can try my best to learn those things but you know use the people around you I'm sure you when you've moved out to the US I'm sure you've leveraged your US colleagues who can tell you more about no Tom this is you know etiquette wise this is what you should do this is how you position it and I think that's sometimes underrated we can we all like to think we're the best at what we do and but I think the minute you stop learning or or try to take on from others I think you can you can miss something there so I think the last point I was really going to ask you in terms of you know how do you sometimes manage that you know, international resource? And it's a bit of a harder question because you are US-based now, but when you were UK-based and you were targeting these different geographies where you had a presence there, you know, how did you leverage that? Well, I didn't do a very good job, to be honest,
1: when I was <laughs> living in the UK because I, I, I thought I knew it and I didn't, yeah. so I was ignorant. Um, so that's something I admit. When I moved to America and you start to realize, oh, shoot, I didn't actually know everything. And I still don't, and I never will. And
0: yeah. you get to
1: that realization. you just got to ask people and have conversations and have productive discussion. And if you don't know something, ask someone you think is going to know. It's all about your personal network and your relationships. I think that's the key thing. And you, you said it. Don't think you know everything because you don't. You never yeah. will. And if you think you know everything, ah, it's a bad road to be on. So yeah. that's kind of the mentality you should have. I'm always trying to learn something. I'm always trying to grow. And there's people that know more about stuff than I than I do. Well, learn from them. And if you've got a network of people either in your own business or that you've worked with or that are in your friend group that understand or have worked in different countries, ask the questions, have conversations, and you'll learn from it.
0: That's why I called you up when I started moving a target in the U.S. market, mate. So um, don't you worry. I'm, I'm practicing that that advice, but. Um... The, the last, the last thing I'm going to ask you, but just to close off this episode, um, it's a little bit cheesy, but we do it on most of the ones. What, what's the advice you'd give to a young, your younger self? If you could give one piece of advice that you think, oh, if I'd learned that, I would have, it would have helped me out so much. What, what, what is it?
1: Um, uh, I don't really know. I'll try and give you a decent answer. Yeah. I think that um, I've been in sales now for twelve, thirteen years, and I've had some success. I've messed a few things up. I've had periods where it's been difficult for me, um, but mostly it's been very positive. So I'll, if I've got the chance to run it back again, I'd probably do it, I'd, I would take it. Um, but one thing that I'd say is, to the point we just talked about, you don't know everything, you never will. And selling is such a massive topic. There's so much to it that you can just, it's never ending, you know, like international selling, the psychology of selling, time, motivating yourself, productivity management, just general, there's so much to it. And I've gone through periods of my life where I've just done my job, worked hard, that's been about it. And I've gone through periods of my life where I've been working hard, doing my job, but also doing stuff outside of my job. So like learning things, reading things, studying, doing seminars, listening to educational podcasts, like trying to better myself. And if I could go back, I would say, do more of that when you were younger
0: take take it more seriously eternally eternally the student and i I was hoping you was going to keep running then because you were just wrapping off future podcast episodes for me psychology of selling and all this so um no it's um no it's really good advice it's definitely advice that i'm i'm still even trying to take on now um you know eight years into into my sales career but um we're we're coming up to time so we'll we'll wrap it up there but tom it's been an absolute pleasure having you on um Mm -hmm. We could have carried on and on and on, so I'm sure we'll have some future episodes where we bring you back on as a guest because it's been, uh, been really insightful. But it uh, been a pleasure, and uh, we'll, we'll catch you on the, uh, on the next episode.